0: You're listening to East Bay Yesterday, the podcast that looks back at stories from Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, and other towns throughout Alameda and Contra Costa County. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past.
1: (laughs) Let's begin. begin. This place has changed hands many times, and often those population changes have been, if not outright violent, then certainly unpleasant for whoever's losing control of the place. That's Brock Winstead,
0: and the place he's talking about is Oakland. About 10 years ago, Brock moved here. Then, in 2011, he bought a house— near the corner of 56th and San Pablo. His neighborhood, the Golden Gate District, is really beautiful. It's not too far from the bay, you've got a nice view of the hills, lots of gorgeous Victorians and craftsmen bungalows. Even the yards that aren't manicured are bursting with succulents and lush greenery. The land is beautiful, but the history,
1: not so much. The history of land tenure around here is the history of one group being able to take advantage of another group, um, and that, that second group kind of being on the, on the back side of the legal system or, or whatever it is. The reason Brock knows that is because he decided to research the
0: history of his property and find out the identity of every single person who had ever owned that plot of land. Actually, his research went all the way back to when the land was lived on by Native people, when the idea of quote-unquote owning land didn't make any sense. Today's episode will explore what Brock discovered, because some of the most important battles happening in Oakland right now are about land use, development, and displacement. And here's the thing, a lot of these fights have already happened, more than once. Recognizing these patterns and the forces that drive them can give us a deeper understanding of what's happening now. It can also shape our thinking about what we want Oakland to look like in the future and how to make that happen. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned.
1: As I'm walking around any city, I'm usually thinking, how did that get there? Why is that street called that? What was here before the building that I see now? And I applied that same curiosity to where I live. First of all, I should mention that after Brock Winstead
0: researched the history of his property, he published the findings, along with some really cool maps, in Boom Magazine. The article is super interesting, but before we get too deep into analyzing the history... Let's take a step back. Here's a super simplified timeline. Going back about 10,000 years, maybe longer, native people lived here. The folks who inhabited this part of Oakland are now referred to as the Hukun Band of the Ohlone people. In the 1500s, Spanish explorers invaded, conquered Mexico, and claimed much of the western part of North America. That included the land now known as California. Then, in the 1700s, the Spanish started actively colonizing California through a mission system that basically led to the genocide of native peoples. As a reward for military service in this process of colonization, the King of Spain gave out large areas of land called ranchos. In 1820, while Mexico was still fighting for independence from Spain, the King granted a rancho that included the land we now know as the East Bay, to Luis Maria Peralta. Just an interesting side note, through his daughter Maria, Luis Peralta was the great, great, great grandfather of the revolutionary Che Guevara. Anyway, the Peralta family named this area Rancho San Antonio, and started raising thousands of horses and cattle here. Things were pretty chill for the Californias until 1849 when the gold rush changed everything. But I'm off for California, that's the place for me. For there's gold in them nar
1: hills, there's gold in them nor hills. I'm off to California for the gold in them Hill. hills.
0: Around the same time, the United States took control of several western states by winning the Mexican-American War. Once California became a part of the U.S., the Peralta's ownership of the East Bay moved into a kind of murky legal territory. Sure enough, the Peralta soon lost the land for a bunch of complicated legal reasons, and a family from Illinois, the Parsons family, showed up, started farming on what was illegally squatted land, and ended up buying a piece of the former rancho in 1858 for about $2,500. As the population of the Bay Area grew, the land in this part of Oakland transformed from rural to residential, and the former farmland started getting carved up into smaller and smaller lots. In 1905, John Cavanaugh, who was a railroad worker, built the house where Brock Winstead now resides. Descendants of the Kavanaugh family actually owned the house all the way up until 1970, but a lot had changed in those seven decades. The biggest changes to Oakland were two major population booms. The first happened after the 1906 earthquake, when a bunch of people moved over from San Francisco. The second boom happened during World War II, when tens of thousands of African-Americans migrated from the South to work in shipyards and factories. According to the census figures, the Golden Gate neighborhood where Brock lives went from being 96% white in 1940 to 85% black in 1970. 1970 is also the year that the daughter-in-law of the Kavanaugh family sold the house, to Willie and Maud Turner, an African-American couple. The Turners eventually sold it to a woman named Charlotte Rose, who fixed up and rented a bunch of houses in this neighborhood. After she died, her son sold it to Brock and his wife, who just had a baby. <coughs> that isn't the sound of Brock's new baby. It's actually the sound potential homebuyers make when they show up to a jam-packed open house in this neighborhood, and realize that they'd had to offer a few hundred thousand dollars over the already astronomical asking price to even have a chance at winning a bid around here. Over the past few years, home prices in Oakland have skyrocketed. This boom has created a bit of a controversy, which is one of the reasons why Brock started his
1: history project in the first place. There were some things going on in my neighborhood and around Oakland and really around the whole Bay Area around the time that my wife and I bought this house in 2011. The big thing was a lot of conversation around uh, gentrification, which is a word that doesn't have a great common definition, but in particular, displacement. People like me moving into neighborhoods and potentially displacing people who are less wealthy, older, tend to be people of color versus me and my wife, for example, were white.
0: As you could probably tell from Brock's answer, he was feeling a little defensive when he started his research. He even admits this towards the beginning of his article. He wrote, quote, Of course, I had some self interest in this investigation. If the local anti gentrification crowd could use history as a cudgel, perhaps I could use it as a shield. End quote. Here's Brock again.
1: A lot of the discussions in Oakland around displacement had to do with who has a right to the city and who does this place really belong to? That's kind of the core of those conversations. And phrases like historic residents get bandied about in those conversations. And that phrase in particular kind of troubled me because I knew at least a little bit about the history of this neighborhood who had lived here not immediately before us, but sometime before that, 1940 and before having seen old census files, I knew that the current picture of the neighborhood demographically was not how it had always been.
0: So many people of color have been displaced from Oakland through evictions. foreclosures in recent years at the same time white people who can pay crazy high rents and expensive mortgages continue to flood in so it's pretty easy to see why people are heated of course when it comes to displacement if you'll excuse the pun nothing is ever as simple as black and white and it never has been here's an example
1: this land, the land under this house and this whole neighborhood and a huge chunk of the Inner East Bay, was part of this large land grant, Rancho San Antonio, given to the Peralta family. And they held on to it for a good long while for well, they held on to it for about 25 years. But when the gold rush triggered this huge influx of primarily English-speaking Anglos from other parts of the United States. And at the same time, California was becoming a part of the United States, first a territory, then a state. That shifted the balance of political power. When
0: people think of squatters now, they probably think of punks or homeless people moving into abandoned warehouses or boarded up vacant homes. Cops and property owners tend to treat these people as pests or criminals. But during the gold rush era... So-called squatters were often very powerful men who knew that they could manipulate the law to get what they wanted. This is exactly how a sheriff, a U.S. senator, and William Sherman, who went on to become a famous Union Army general, came to own a chunk of North Oakland that included
1: the Golden Gate District. So suddenly this new majority, this new English-speaking, in quotes, American majority, They're the ones making the policy and enforcing the laws. And that's how you ended up with some state and some federal laws that in the early 1850s, immediately post-gold rush, allowed people to come in and treat land that was legally owned by these Mexican land grant owners, the Californios, the ranchers that were here, it allowed people newcomers to kind of treat it if they kind of squinted and looked in the right direction as unoccupied land, which in you know, that's what the the law required that it be in quotes unoccupied. You could come into this area uh, or other parts of California, and if you could sort of make the case that the land was unoccupied, unused, you could set up a little farm there, a little house there, and it could be yours. And it didn't th- this particular piece of land that we're on right now, it didn't exactly pan out that the person who started farming here without title, that farmer, that farming family, didn't just automatically gain title. There were a couple of other land deals in the middle there, but he ended up owning this land after he bought it from the people who got it from the Peraltas. So it kind of worked. He, they farmed here and, and lived here and then ended up owning this significant chunk of land that when they first showed up here and started farming on it, they had no claim to. What happened to
0: the Peraltas is a pretty obvious example of displacement. But who should we be rooting for here? Let's take a look at the pros and cons for each side of the argument. On the pro-Peralta side, they had been living on this land for decades. They didn't fight against the United States and the Mexican-American War, so why should they lose their land? it kind of seems like they got screwed by the notoriously corrupt gold rush era california courts on the con side of the peralta argument let's not forget that they were rewarded this land for being part of a genocidal campaign that destroyed the lives and culture of countless native peoples do you think the Aloni would have had much sympathy for the peraltas plus it's not like they were doing that much with this land Sure, they were raising horses and cattle, but is that really the best use of Oakland? This kind of reminds me of when some friends of mine turned a small vacant plot of land into an unpermitted garden a few years ago. After they'd put tons of effort into growing herbs and vegetables and creating a really cool space for people in the community to come together, the landlord decided that they wanted to bulldoze the garden and turn it into a few more parking spots. Unfortunately, the landlord ended up winning that battle. Maybe that's one of the reasons why I tend to have some sympathy with people who want to farm on what is unused or underutilized land. Okay, on the pro-settler side, these were the people who set the stage for the development of Oakland, a town I now live in and love. Would you prefer that Oakland is still all a cattle ranch? I certainly wouldn't. However... On the con side, and these are some pretty big cons, this whole episode is a textbook example of the white supremacist colonization mentality of U.S. expansion. The history of pretty much the whole United States is a history of rich white men using shady treaties and laws that they wrote
1: and violence to displace people of color who are here first. The story of that farming family, the the Parsons, and this piece of land was repeated all over Oakland and the East Bay and other parts of California, too, where those, those land grant ranchos were carved up and parceled out in land deals and sales or outright kind of squatting adverse possession situations to people who really shouldn't have had a claim to them, but were able to work the system because they were part of that new majority. And that sort of New majority taking over process is one of those themes that gets repeated in the history of this land and lots of other places around here. The family that Brock just mentioned,
0: the Parsons family, when they were farming this land during the second half of the 1800s, the population of Oakland was growing steadily. As the land became more valuable, they sold off chunks of their property to people who wanted to build homes. As the area got more residential,
1: their farm got smaller and smaller. And then this happened. George Parsons died in, I can't remember the exact year, I think early 1880s, when his wagon, I think he was he was on a horse-pulled wagon, it was hit somewhere, somehow collided with one of the new streetcars that was serving the area that was helping to turn this place into the new thing that it was becoming, The this new streetcar suburb. And, um... In this pretty glaring metaphor, uh, here's this this farmer being killed by this new placemaking conveyance, really just driving home this sort of generational turnover thing. This is another one of those recurring
0: themes. The new literally destroys the old. When the BART system, another placemaking conveyance to use Brock's term, came in, The thriving black neighborhood along 7th Street in West Oakland was demolished. When I interviewed Tina Ramos a few episodes back, she told me how the construction of 880 and 980 literally erased Oakland's Latino Barrio. What looks like progress to some people can look like destruction to others. Around 2011, when housing costs were just starting to really take off, something happened that put the Golden Gate District right in the spotlight of Oakland's gentrification controversy. Some real estate industry people tried to rename the neighborhood. They launched a campaign to start calling it NOBI, as an acronym for North Oakland, Berkeley, Emeryville, since this area is at the crossroads of those three towns. Here's a clip from one of their promo videos. It's almost like this best kept secret and it's totally taken off as these hipsters and young professionals are coming in and really endorsing this community. Love it. Live it. They can walk to so many different cafes and new cool bars that are coming in that I myself absolutely love. as an agent, it's so fun to sell the Novi neighborhood because I can see this revitalization taking place, this great buzz taking place, and it's pretty cool. It'll be interesting to see where Nobe is in a couple years. Avery Truffleman did a really good job covering this story for the podcast 99% Invisible, which is totally worth listening to. Here's how Brock sums up the
1: response. When there was... the fracas in the neighborhood about the rebranding of this chunk of the East Bay as Nobi, not just this neighborhood, but neighborhoods around it kind of together, North Oakland, Berkeley, Emeryville, in this pretty transparent attempt to kind of apply the, the sheen of Berkeley and Emeryville to Oakland, to a part of Oakland. I think enough people understood that this place already had a name and a history that there was a fracas about it. It didn't just go over without comment even if they didn't know the whole story of what that history was they said this place has a name there are people who are already living here it wasn't just discovered Uh, please honor those people and that history real estate people trying to rebrand a place to make it
0: seem fancier is nothing new there was even another failed effort to rename the golden gate area more than a century ago and there was a pretty big backlash
1: to that attempt too I'm not a practicing urban planner, but one of the things I did take away from planning school was some sense of the history of, in particular, American cities, how they began, unfolded, grew. And you do see these uh, same phenomena kind of repeated, not just here in the Bay Area, but all over the place, of cities being built by people who are out to make a buck. Back in the
0: 1870s and 80s, the guy trying to make a buck around here was an entrepreneur named Charles Clinker. Clinker bought land and built houses and tried to promote it using the name, are you ready? Clinkerville. He was kind of a proto Donald Trump, and just like Trump, Clinker was a relentless self-promoter. He paraded mules around that had been painted red, white, and blue through Oakland on the 4th of July. He also used ridiculous gimmicks to hype the neighborhood. One of these stunts involved putting a blanket promoting Klinknerville on his dog, and then having a monkey ride that dog through the streets. Anyway, a lot of people thought Clinker was a jackass, and the name didn't stick. But it's interesting
1: to see these kinds of controversies repeating themselves. Over time, the character of a place will change, the population changes, turns over, and people f- seem to forget that the "quote-unquote" historic neighborhood was was also built by for-profit developers. We shouldn't have amnesia about the fact that most of our "historic" "quote-unquote" historic neighborhoods were were built by people either seeking to make a profit quickly or a- at least make a small return on, on a personal investment. But that doesn't mean that we have to excuse the behavior of people who might be doing the same thing nowadays. A lot of this behavior isn't just being accepted. Activists and
0: some politicians and nonprofits are pushing back against the idea that Oakland is a blank slate for developers to wipe clean and flip for a quick profit. Some critics are using history to make their case.
1: I think you can look at history as an exercise in storytelling. Um, I took a particular tack storytelling about the history of this neighborhood and, and, and this house. But there are a lot of different stories that you can tell about any place that has a sufficiently thick history, and that includes the city of Oakland. Stories, in turn, can become politically useful. I think that there are a lot of stories about Oakland that people hold on to because they are politically useful. The history of Oakland's um, 1960s, 70s radical groups. A lot of people in Oakland like to point to that to then make a point about how something should be in the present day. And maybe they're right in some cases, but there are alternative stories about a place that you could point to and say, which is why we should do something else. Remember at the beginning of this episode when I talked about how Brock
0: thought that he could use history as a kind of shield to defend himself against accusations that people like him didn't belong here. In some ways, the people who are worried or even fighting against displacement are trying to use history in a similar way, as a shield to protect themselves from these forces that are coming in and changing the city. And a story alone isn't a very good shield.
1: Oakland is is going through a lot of changes right now. And I think it's fashionable in current Oakland politics to hearken to a particular kind of Oakland history, left-leaning or progressive or even radical history, to say, this is what Oakland should become in the future, because we were this in the past is what we should become in the future. None of that changes the fundamental market processes that are reshaping Oakland. Appeals to a historical story about a place might move one audience, but unless you put actual kind of policies in place to shape or change or stop economic processes, that's what shapes a city. Whether it's the imperative to take over land for farming to feed the growing city of San Francisco across the Bay, or the desirability of residential lots carved out of that farmland, prompted in part by people running streetcars, or a sudden building boom caused by an influx of population based on an earthquake. By and large, what shapes American cities are economic processes. And then policy sometimes comes along for the ride. And maybe stories, historical stories, help shape that policy. To be fair to the
0: folks organizing against displacement, many of them are doing a lot more than telling stories. Activists have squeezed concessions for affordable housing and other community benefits out of developers. Some evictions have been blocked. And what's happening now in the wake of the Ghost Ship fire, with people coming together to support creative underground warehouse spaces, is a perfect example of the power of organizing. And sometimes storytelling can be a powerful tool. Groups like the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project gather stories of abusive landlords and unjust evictions, and use these to rally people and inform policy decisions. But stories alone can be a placebo. We can tell ourselves that Oakland is a creative place where artists can thrive or an oasis for radicals, but unless these stories are used strategically, they'll simply become myths. And so many of the things we love about Oakland
1: will fade into history. Researching the story of this place, you just see these cycles repeat in various ways over and over again. And you start to wonder how far have we really come in the past 100 or 200 years or whatever it is in terms of how we treat other people and how we mitigate against the economic forces that shape our cities and kind of determine our lives in a lot of cases, you start to wonder how much progress have we really made. It's hard to sometimes keep in mind that actually we have made a lot of progress. So I I don't like to romanticize the past. As frustrated as I get about the lack of progress in sort of our current political moment um, and our current housing situation, I never say the phrase good old days unironically. There is no such thing. There's a lot of truth in the idea that the good old days are a myth.
0: But it's also hard not to feel nostalgic for a time when a working-class family could buy a nice home in Oakland. Remember the African-American couple Willie and Maud Turner that bought Brock's house in 1970? They immigrated here from the South during World War II so Willie could work in a factory. Then he got a job as a janitor. It's almost impossible to imagine any kind of blue-collar worker like this buying a home in Oakland today. Even the least expensive houses now mostly cost more than half a million dollars.
1: You're right, it's hard not to feel, maybe nostalgic is the wrong word, but certainly to to understand the virtue of a place where a working-class family could afford to to live and, and raise their family... But that particular example of the family, the, the African-American family bought this house in the early 70s, as the neighborhood was becoming predominantly black, that was at a time when they were, by various mechanisms, kept from buying houses in other parts of the Bay Area, and other places, in other parts of Oakland even. What Brock is talking about here is called
0: redlining. The East Bay thinks of itself as a diverse, progressive area now. But as recently as the 1970s, segregationist housing policies limited where African-Americans could live. And even before the World War II era migration boom, whites were freaking out about people
1: of color moving to Oakland. And they tried to stop it. That middle class or working class affordability came with some pretty nasty strings attached in terms of the other things that were happening in society. And that's why I say, you know, we have, I, I, I can't forget that we have made progress. It's not perfect, but we've certainly made progress in housing discrimination, for example. Hardly perfect, but we've made progress. And so I don't, even at a time when Oakland, when this neighborhood or the wider Bay Area was more affordable, I can, I can never say, oh, we really ought to wind back the clock. Here's one example
0: of those nasty strings Brock is talking about. The Homeowners Loan Corporation was created by President Roosevelt during the Great Depression. Its job was to help homeowners refinance their mortgages. In other words, the government stepped in to keep people from getting foreclosed on and losing their houses. Well, actually, I should be more specific. They kept white people from losing their homes. Check out this line from a 1937 Home Owners Loan Corporation report on North Oakland. Quote, Occasionally, there are several blocks which are practically free of coloreds or orientals, but certain blocks are nearly 100% Negro and constantly spreading. End quote. Because of that report, the Golden Gate neighborhood was redlined which meant that residents couldn't get federally guaranteed loans, or pretty much any loans, to buy, build, or improve their homes. And don't forget, these are the only areas where black people are allowed to live. When whole neighborhoods can't get loans, houses eventually start to fall apart. Then the city or the state can come in and say, this is all blight, we're going to tear it down to build a highway or a BART, This is exactly what happened in many parts of Oakland. This kind of institutionalized discrimination was happening at the state and local level, too. It's no accident that once Oakland started becoming quote-unquote desirable again, that institutional investors were able to displace families that have lived here for generations so easily. Brock pretty much nailed it when he came to this conclusion in his article. Quote, The law does not serve everyone equally. It's usually not designed to. So that's it. A history of Oakland as seen through the history of one piece of land. I'll just leave you with one more quote from Brock's article. It sums things up with a phrase that I've been thinking about a lot lately. As I walk through the streets of Oakland and watch the city transforming quickly, in ways that scare me. He wrote, Neighborhoods are constantly in flux, and change itself is not necessarily where the problem lies. Thanks for listening to East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. For this episode, I want to thank Brock Winstead, Boom Magazine, and Burrito Justice, who did some great interactive maps that went along with Brock's article. Also, thanks to Robert O'Self, who wrote the book American Babylon, Race and the Struggle for Post-War Oakland. This book is so important for understanding Oakland. I highly recommend checking it out. And also, definitely check out the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project. As always, props to everyone who's working hard to keep Oakland history alive through projects like the Oakland Wiki, the Oakland Heritage Alliance, the Oakland Cultural Heritage Survey, and of course, the local history room at the Oakland Library. To see photos for this episode, follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like this episode and you want to hear more stories from East Bay Yesterday, please, seriously, please, Take a minute right now to help spread the word about this podcast. Share it on Facebook or social media, or better yet, next time you're telling someone about the show, ask them to take out their phone, pull up their podcast app, and subscribe right there on the spot. Music for this episode was provided by Lee Rosevere, Frankie Marvin, and Trio Sochi Slowaka. The theme song music came from Anatolica. If you have feedback on today's show, or you want to suggest a topic for a future episode, drop me a line on the social media channel of your choice or at ispayesterday at gmail.com. See you next week. I could go to Georgia where the peaches grow on trees. But I'm off Fort California with a pick across my knees. Oh, the gold in them are hills, the gold in them are hills. I'm off to California for the gold in them Hill. Hills.